0: Their rising all at once was the sound of a thunder heard remote. And speaking of a sound of thunder, welcome back to uh, CivCast, by the way. This is the episode that we are recording on Monday, May the 7th. For your listening pleasure, before we get started here, um, I wanted to apologize. I know that last week I was listening back to the recording. There were a few, I think there were connection issues more than audio issues on my end. So I apologize for that, guys. I guess the internet was just... I don't know, having a hiccup or a bad day or had a hangover or something. Um, but I am Dan. My co-host is Vouter. You guys are back and you are listening to us for a fourth consecutive week. And thank you to everyone, by the way, who has uh, returned to the show. You guys have come back in droves. We we're looking at our listening numbers. We were talking a bit with Kyle about it. And our numbers are, uh, they're, they're good. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty darn happy with the amount of folks
1: who uh, invite us into their ear holes on a weekly basis, Voucher. How about you? I'm always happy to uh, be able to lend my voice to their ear holes, and I'm glad that so many people are still enjoying the show after so many episodes. I think this is 59 already.
0: Yeah, 59. I mean, we've, you know, as you guys know, you know, we've had some starts and some stops, and we've had some pauses and such. But the fact that we're coming up towards episode 60 is, I think, pretty awesome. So thank you to invite us into your homes, folks. We hope that you provide you with. uh, with the sieve knowledge that you crave, and today we are going to talk about a couple different things. Uh, first, on the docket, I think we can talk a little bit about the uh, report back section, voucher. You think that sounds? Yeah, that let's sounds do that. Great. Yeah, let's talk about report back. So as we shared with you guys a couple weeks ago, our report back section is a uh, new initiative where we are going to uh, take a sieve. Uh, That maybe we haven't played in a while or that's new or that there's something that's changed about them in recent uh, weeks or recent patches. And we're going to play through a full game with them. and Just kind of give feedback on that game with an angle towards, you know, a specific nuance or a specific element. Not just like playing the Civ and saying, oh, hey, they're great. Oh, hey, they're bad. But like Voucher and I are going to gear it towards, you know, specific victory type. So if we're talking about a specific victory type or a specific... So that way we're not just like recycling games where we're playing without any direction. And we could give you guys specific feedback. So we appreciate you going on the Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash civcast. And sharing your uh, report backs with us, sharing your experiences. That has been fun to follow. So uh, with that in mind, for this week, we uh, decided to go for Congo and culture victory. Which was, I mean... I, I don't know, it, it, they're pretty well tailored for a culture of victory, certainly more so than others, I think. Um, but Valtu, perhaps you can go first share with us everything, your map type, your opponents, your experience. How did you get there?
1: Okay, so I decided to go against my natural instinct and went with a continents map this time. I usually play on Pangea, Pangea exclusively, but I thought to change it up a bit um on my continent i had two neighbors one of which was poland and the other was china now i plan to play this game very peaceful because i want to have trade routes with all my well other uh, civilizations on the map and that way I get like the maximum amount of tourism out of them as possible unfortunately for me poland decided to plop a city of them pretty much next to my capital there are literally literally like three tiles in between of them and well and it was kind of annoying but i was the peaceful one in this case and decided not to like go uh charge at them directly (laughs) that's good of you yeah it took some restraints but i was like no 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 i can look past this this is fine and and then they Turn the other cheek. Yeah. exactly and they asked me to uh, join in a war against uh, China, which I also refused because I was peaceful. And uh-huh. then China and Poland decided together that they should teach me a lesson and declare war on me. Well, who
0: sells? But who's buying? Yeah.
1: Uh, Luckily for me, I was kind of prepared because I was going to do a peaceful game. Uh, all my cities had walls up and everything like that. And I had some archers trained in uh, the border cities, at least. And, uh, well, then I just geared a couple of my cities to produce some of my beautiful unique unit because it was quite early in the game. And mm-hmm. was able to uh, show them the Nagawa uh, What what they are made of, and I conquered both Poland and China completely before I actually met one of the other siths. Good. So I was the you, sole... You taught them their lesson. I did you, you, see some. Like, you mesh it, with Congo, <laughs> you you get, well, extinction pretty much. Um, yeah. So I was the sole ruler of my entire continent, which turned out was the biggest continent uh, on the map itself as well. So I went on a huge settling spree, Was able to use uh, the golden age that you can use with uh, fate to buy civilian units as well to buy a couple of settlers. Uh, I had a big gold income as well, so I could use gold to buy settlers. Had a couple of cities produce settlers. I ended up with like I don't know, like 18 cities at least.
0: Oh my god! What?
1: Yeah, I, I I went a huge settling spree. And uh, because I also kept every city that I conquered from uh, China and Poland as well. So uh, I ended up with a lot of them. Um, the
0: micromanagement 18 cities must require, dude. That's insane. Uh,
1: yeah, the, it, it, was, it was a lot. But uh, it was definitely doable. And I have the CQ UI mod installed as well. So I can have production queues okay. in my cities yeah. and stuff like that. So that, that actually makes a lot uh, of difference for me. And I usually don't really mind the micromanagement so much. So I had a lot of trade routes running up and I met my other opponents, uh, Cleopatra, um, England, and um, oh, what was he called again? The Machapuche? Uh, Mapuche. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I think his name was something like... Lautro. Ch- yeah, Lautro, L- yeah. indeed. Um, they were all kind of far off. England didn't like me because she didn't have a presence on my continent, and I was like, well, put a city up here then, but of course she didn't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Cleopatra was impressed with my military, because after the war, I had a pretty decent military. I kept upgrading them as well, just in case of emergencies and stuff like that. Um, so she was happy with me. I ended up yep. in a war with her and um, England anyway, because I assumed that England uh, after her deal for a joint war. But uh, luckily with that them being on the uh, other continent, I didn't see much of them. And I kept always building uh, walls in all my cities. So uh, I was safe had they decided to put a assault to me anyway. But beyond that, I co- went to pretty easy cultural victory because so many cities all with theatre districts from pretty much as soon as possible meant yeah. that I was making great people points and of um they I literally had more great people that I knew what to do with even with that many cities and the huge palace that uh Congo starts with. So um I decided to have a little bit of a variance between uh, mostly um Art museums, but a couple of archaeological museums to dig up some of the artifacts. Okay, but yeah. Because I had so many great artists uh, running in, I had to focus mostly on art museums as well. Yeah. And I won okay. on turn 228, 1585 okay. AD. And uh, yeah, well, it was a cultural victory.
0: Nice. Good job. Thank so, you. What, what difficulty were you playing on?
1: I was playing on Emperor this time. Okay. okay, that's good.
0: So, cultural victories, it's safe to say, uh, I, I think at least in my experiences in Civs, not just so, certainly, um, it, the cultural type victory, its it takes longer, right, in your experience?
1: Yeah, it definitely does, because in the beginning of the game, people... Like, don't civilizations don't put out a lot of tourism while they are starting to build up uh, culture? And I've delved into numbers uh, a while back ago for one of my uh, strategy sessions and stuff like that. And um, it's it's a threshold that you need to get over. Religion can do a certain amount of tourism, but that is not really what you're suited for as the Congo, since you don't really have the ability to have any holy sites. Right. Yeah.
0: So, okay, early game, what's your like let's just say as a standard, you say you're playing continents, but irrespective of continents or Pangaea, what's your opening build order then if you're go if you know right away you're playing a game where you want to go cultural victory? Do you start with a monument or what's your first kind of, uh, four or five builds in the builder.
1: Well, the thing is that a monument provides culture, not tourism. So, in like for, because that's, that's the thing. Um, the culture victory doesn't really have to do much with culture. I mean, of course, yeah. you produce some culture from your uh, great works of art anyway, but it doesn't bring you any closer to victory. It just staves off like others uh, with their tourism from you way. So, the yeah. monument is not really useful. I think in most of my cities, I didn't have a monument at the end of the game anyway. Okay. But uh, usually, what I go for, uh, pretty much whatever I'm playing, is Builder First because uh, by the time that Builder is done, I will have researched one of the techs that I can hook up a luxury or production or something like that, and maybe a farm or anything like that, just to help my uh, First City. Be established a little bit more, and okay. um, then depending on what happened around me, I build uh, a warrior or just go immediately for a settler, because I okay. want to get out uh, another city as quickly as possible.
0: And generally, on emperor, you're going to need at least two or three uh, military units early on to stave off the barbarians, right? So,
1: well, it really depends on how proactive I am and how. Proactive like the other civilizations around me are like in this game I didn't need the extra protection because I had uh, a city-state really close by I had Poland also really close by And so I only had like the south of me to worry about with barbarians Which I did very prudent scouting of and everything like that. So if a barbarian uh, Camp uh, popped up. I could immediately set my warrior there and take them out and uh, therefore, I didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't need ha- a second warrior or any other ma- military unit at all um, in the beginning, so I could save my yeah. precious turns in the beginning to literally start uh, snowballing and expanding my empire.
0: That's a good call. You know that barbarian strategy. I was watching uh, Quill eighteen play a couple uh, like let's play on YouTube this week, and one of his strategies was to spawn scouts on his little island and then just to just kind of position them as sentries almost, in any area where he didn't have sight in order to prevent um, any sort of barbarian camp from spawning. And I thought that that's something that I think I'd considered but hadn't really seen the expediency of. And actually, in my game, I, I ended up doing that. I ended up spawning two or three scouts. And so once I'd scouted you know, a sufficient amount near me or around me, I just kind of just let them hang out at the very kind of periphery of my cities so that I had full sight and no barbarian camps were going to spawn anywhere near my town. So...
1: It's, I actually, um, actually don't like that strategy at all. You don't popular. like it? Okay. The reason why is I like when Barbarian Camps spawn, especially now with the age system. If they're close by enough, yeah. you get age points for them. You get a, a gold bonus out of them, which can be really useful in the beginning to, for example, buy a trader or uh, by a builder or anything like that that you don't want to waste turns on. So I, 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 we, I want more barbarians to spawn and I don't, like, lift the fog of war with my units unless I, I have to. And um, when you have, like, the, the, the kind of map overlay where you can still see the terrain and everything like that, yeah. You can see when a barbarian camp is spawned uh, on that because that actually gets updated. So just yeah. keep paying attention to your surroundings and everything like that. And when you see one popping up, then not immediately a scout is released either. So you have more than enough time, if you're proactive with it, to go to the encampment and kill the spearman that's in it with your initial warrior, which should be no problem if you have like the policy that gives you plus five combat strength versus barbarians. And Damn. especially if your warrior has a promotion already, then you have no problem clearing that camp out, and it's pretty much free money and experience for that unit.
0: Yeah, and I guess you know one thing I have noticed is the plus three era score you get for clearing a barbarian camp. That is generally that's like one of the few, you know, surefire, reliable ways to get era score in the uh, the what is it the ancient era, the first era. Yeah, and that's super helpful. That's put me over the top for uh, normal ages and golden ages a couple of times. So that's fair. Maybe I just... I don't know. Maybe I need to look at them as less of a pestilence and more of an opportunity.
1: I mean, yeah. that's how I look at it, but it is a lot of micromanaging as well because you need to keep paying attention to your surroundings, make sure that when a barbarian camp pops up that you immediately go deal with it because if you leave it too long, you could end up with a scout finding your cities and bring back a horde to your cities and then having just one or two warriors probably won't be enough.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, Two, two questions specifically. The first one, uh, the we talked about this before. The achievement. Uh, there's one Congo-specific achievement. It's called City of Congo. Playing as Congo, have a capital city with a population <laughs> of 30. Did you get that, my friend?
1: I did not, but um, I I believe I got to like 19 or something like that. I, I, in yeah. the beginning, I wanted to focus on it. But in the end, it was clear to me that uh, even with all the trade routes that I had, that it wasn't going to happen, uh, unless I literally staved off reaching victory. Now, I could have played on for a bit longer uh, after I reached victory, and I am 100% certain that I would have gotten it before the time was over, but I didn't decide to do that.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess one of the people who reported back, uh, Dash Rip, talked about um, how it takes just a lot of time investment with farms, but, you know, we're going to share everyone's report back after. Um, I think there are only two actually to share, but uh, yeah, you know, I don't think that in a conventional game where you're actually striving for a victory, it makes any sort of sense to go for, like to just pile that much into one city to get that achievement. But I mean, I guess if you do the one more turn option after victory, it might make, it might work. It might make sense. Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: And I think I could have pulled it off if I had a little bit of more peace uh, around me because um, sending trade routes to allies is pretty good, and you can get quite a lot of food from it, especially since one of them was Cleopatra. And if I was able to send from my capital my, I don't know, like 18 trade routes, 19, I don't know how many it were, most of them towards Cleopatra, then that would have been a significant amount of food influx towards my city that uh, I would definitely probably would have made it... um, in in the time that i had in the game but since there was a war uh with cleopatra and it took me a long while before she started to like me i had to give a couple of uh gifts of like here are some gold just be friendly towards me Mm -hmm. Uh, even then it took quite a lot of time to actually get an alliance with her and when i did things were awesome and i sent like all my trade routes towards her but um, until that point, I, I only had the internal trade routes, and I decided to go um, with the Magnus and his ability in my capital city and profit, like uh, all my other cities, from the super awesome trade routes towards uh, my capital.
0: Nice. The, the second question I think that people would want to hear is there any uh, wonder, any specific wonder that you prioritize and that you beeline that you think is essential to a culture victory?
1: Uh, not necessarily beeline things that are important for cultural victory. Um, well, as I said before, I ran into problems with space. And uh, the Bolshoi Theater is a pretty useful one for that. Same as the Hermitage. Um, okay. They both give you some slots. And in the beginning of the game, uh, uh, one that I focused on was the Great Library because it has two great works of writing uh, slots available, which I was always pressed for as well. So when I'm playing for this victory, and I know, especially with Congo, because you have such a large boost to your uh, great um, musicians, artists, and uh, writers' points you know you're going to be pressed for slots so i focus on those where i can get extra slots available
0: yeah i've been crazy pressed for slots in mine um and one thing to remember is like for the people listening the civ ability for congo and the which gives plus two food plus two production and plus four gold from each relic artifact and sculpture great work of art in addition to the usual culture that's great the two things that get me the best about this ability has three different nuances to it the second one you receive 50 percent more great writer artist musician and merchant points and then the key one as you we were talking about before how the palace has slots for five great works that saved my butt early on because i think i spawned the first three great writers homer ovid and i don't remember the third one was and um i also stumbled i think i think one of the villages had a relic as well so my Ooh. like if i didn't have the five great work yeah i know i got pretty lucky early on so if i didn't have the five great work uh, spots early on, I would have been I would have been screwed quite frankly. Or I would have had to wait. Not been screwed. You can just you can just have the great person sleep until you have slots.
1: But yeah. yeah I mean it feels kind of like a waste. But yeah, it's it definitely does. a thing. But yeah, I want to sure. point out as well that I really love the point of the great merchant also giving you the extra points. That yeah. is such an amazing thing because I mean I build a lot of commercial districts pretty much in every city because straight routes are king. And um, yep. getting a lot of great merchants is awesome because there are some really good in there also a couple that if you don't make it like uh, in the amount of terms that i did later on in the game near the end of the game there are a couple of great merchants in there that will give you uh, plus 50 percent extra tourism if you have a trade route with a civilization so Mm -hmm. like the great merchants are also really good for a tourism victory actually and i really love that that actually is shown here as well
0: Yeah, it runs, definitely, absolutely runs concurrent with it. So, okay. Um, And then, I'll talk about mine in a sec, um, but I wanted to get your thoughts. We talked about the Nagao Um, I want to get your thoughts on the Mbanza. Um, Is it helpful? Is it useful? Or is it just kind of a waste of space?
1: Um, I actually like it. uh, Especially now as well with the fact that you can build a building later on in it that gives you culture. But uh, the fact that it actually gives you some extra food uh, and gold as well is just pretty useful um it's sad though that i had to replace forest and rainforest uh with it though um but yeah that's just bar for course i guess um, mm-hmm. I rather would have like chopped them or, or, or something like that for the production bonus and food bonus and stuff from that. But yeah. that, that's pretty much a no-go for Congo because you need to have those districts. I do love the fact that they come early in the game. Um, they Did come you? a lot earlier than the neighborhood. And uh, that way I feel so much more relaxed about it that I am not never suppressed for housing, for example, with Congo. Yeah,
0: absolutely, and the fact that it comes with guilds, which is you know a useful civic that I know I get pretty quickly to, really helped. Um, plus five housing, plus two food, plus four gold. So I mean, that, those are
1: good stats, right? That's a good spread. Oh yeah, absolutely, and it, it, it's like uh, I think two eras earlier than urbanization. So that's yeah. a significant amount of uh, of time that really really helps. Um, yeah. Good. Okay, that's awesome. So.
0: You good if i share a little bit of mine oh yeah please
1: i'm really curious
0: okay my game was extremely ironic and heartbreaking for a couple different reasons um, i had a really good start um first civ i stumbled on was robert the bruce in scotland who i of course naturally wanted to ally but who didn't really seem he didn't seem too fond of me from pretty much the get-go and by the way this is my first game stumbling upon um scotland as a civ that i've played against so listening to his um scots english his gala confused english is really cool um, (laughs) when he speaks it's really fantastic um but his neighbor and this is where it got a little heartbreaking for me on the storytelling side his neighbor was england and she loved me and so what i ended up having to do voucher against you know against my instincts and against my better intuition was ally with england in a war against scotland Oh, no. So you, you can understand how conflicted I would have been doing that.
1: Your Sc- poor Scottish soul.
0: I know. I, I, it, was, it was terrible. But um, yeah, Scotland was really aggro from really early on. Like I said, I got a relic really early on. And I also got Protestantism spread to me really early um, from my other neighbor on the other side, which was actually the Netherlands. Um, and she didn't like me very much either. It should be noted. Wilhelmina wasn't a huge fan of me, but it is what it is. Um, I, like I said, I was pumping out you know great writer points pretty quickly. I didn't really prioritize anything. Um, I managed to uh take over the closest uh Scottish city, which was I think it wasn't Sterling, it was like Dumbarton, I think. Um and I annexed that. And so by uh towards the end of the Renaissance age, I had I want to say seven cities. yeah, seven cities. And I was pumping out um great artists, specifically great writers and great musicians. Um, I had rushed the Coliseum
1: oh, um, nice. early on,
0: and I'm curious your thoughts as to whether that was... I mean, it didn't like set me back or anything like that. Um, Coliseum gives plus two culture and plus three amenities to this city and all cities in a six-tile radius. And my cities were all pretty tightly clumped together. Um, so I, it just, it just kind of made sense to me to do that. I think it also has plus two loyalty as well um, as of rise and fall. I'm just reading here. So I rushed that. I Do you think that was a good plan?
1: I mean, I really love the Colosseum. It's a great wonder, and I try to build it every game, especially since the AI, AI is totally not willing to go for it. Um, True. If, if I don't build reason. it, if I don't build it, then it's usually still available towards the end of the game.
0: Yeah, I noticed that too. Like that, there were we were at least a couple ages beyond. Well, not a couple ages, we were at least one age beyond. And I think that's kind of what. You know, inspired me to go and actually lean into it. I didn't get it right at first, but then when I saw that it hadn't been taken, and I reminded myself that it had all these culture bumps, I went and really quickly leaned into it. The other wonder I went hard in on was the Forbidden City, which gives uh, plus five culture and a permanent wild card slot. So just yeah. stats, yeah. basically, um, plus five culture towards the end of the game doesn't help. I know um, the fact that it would need it would need more stats to be beneficial or more kind of nuance to it. The permanent wild card spot was helpful, for sure. Um, I rolled two golden ages um, right off the bat, so that was really neat. was fortunate there. Um, I used the pen and brush uh, golden age ability, which um, gives you era score for Eurekas for civics. And so I played one of those little mini games where you focus in on all your Eurekas and stuff like that. And so that maybe distracted me a little bit from really going out there and tearing the world apart. But I forgot to mention too, another ironic part, I actually played this on Pangea. I usually play Continent, but because of <laughs> all your talk about Pangea, I decided, I'd oh, you know, Voucher's probably going to pay Pangea. Let's see if I can uh, get on the same wave like Vazel, but then you go and play Continent. So that's,
1: oh, that's, that's great. kind of funny.
0: Yeah, but um, anyway, so I, like I said, I didn't finish my game yet. Um, my weekend was quite busy with work and stuff. I wanted to finish it over the weekend. Didn't get a chance to, but I got really deep into it and I'm far and away dominating. I keep getting trade offers for all my great works from every sieve. Like it feels like every turn and they keep offering me an insane amount of stuff. Like they offer a crap ton for yeah, your yeah. great works. And I could see the benefit of if you're not leaning towards tourism or culture victory at all, like you maybe just lucked into one or something like that. Yeah. Sell it, barter it, highest bidder, right? Like they'll give you a lot.
1: Especially Um, the Congo, I mean, you talked about the same problem that I had uh, with a lot of extra great people that wanted to fill up slots while you didn't have any. It would make sense for you to send away maybe one or two of those uh, great works for a significant amount of whatever they can give you. Because you will yeah. have you have enough slots to fill up anyway, and if the others aren't really contesting you in uh, tourism or culture that much anyway, that's fine. And otherwise, just give it to like the weakest person uh, in in those kinds of areas, and just cash in big time.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I think that would be a really good plan. Um, maybe even yeah, like you say, maybe even if you're leaning into a culture victory would make a level of sense, but I just i the the noob min maxer in me just feels bad trading away anything that's contributing to my culture victory. But I know what you mean. um the Ngaonbeba, uh was helpful. It was super useful for me in my fight specifically against Scotland. You get it with ironworking, um so I prioritize that, and you know they're tough they're tough dudes, right? They don't suffer uh, movement or sight penalties in rain uh, woods or rainforest which is helpful because I think your start bias is inherently rainforest with Congo. Yeah. At least I was, I was just deep in the freaking Amazon. It felt like, um, you get defensive bonus against range attacks. Robert rolled out a bunch of uh, archers and crossbowmen and it doesn't require iron to build, which was really neat because I didn't have any, I had like I had one iron resource within my walls. So I pumped out a bunch of those much like how we talked about last week, um with or no it wasn't georgia it was with amenator with nubia how i felt like this is a this is a really strong early game uh unique unit and i just I, I felt like it really um it did its job it did the work it needed to um and it helped me in my conquest of scotland but yeah overall you know uh, it was fun um i've talked in the past about how i don't lean into culture victories i don't find it as enjoyable Um, for whatever reason. I mean, I I had fun with this. In the past, I haven't found it as enjoyable, but this kind of showed me that, you know, going culture doesn't necessarily... I know you played an insulated kind of protectionist game. Um, I didn't really, to be honest. And, you know, I kind of thought those two things went hand in hand, but they don't necessarily need to. You can play, you know, an expansion and, you know, you you went up to 18 cities as well. So, I mean, you kind of went in both directions i guess but you yeah. can, you can you can do both right i guess is what i'm trying to say here i'm stumbling towards that point but you can do both you can be militaristic you can you can conquer and still go for a civil or a culture victory
1: i think is that fair to say i mean if you have less enemies then you have less people that you need to convince that your uh, tourism is the best tourism out there so in kind of way it it does work that way as long as you can keep that person like really low on culture because only the highest in culture counts for your victory so you need to overcome the most like domestic tourists and um Yeah, if you pick out people who have relatively lower culture output in general and stuff like that and keep them alive and conquer the rest, especially if you have a a Greek civilization, for example, on there, yeah, go conquer them because they're going to be a nuisance for you. They're going to be the one that actually uh, puts you off from winning the game for a longer period of time because their culture is so high. By destroying them, you eliminate that and you'll be able to win earlier at least or easier or or winning at all. Yeah, and that does make a lot of sense. And
0: Scotland does lean in towards culture and science to some extent. So I guess it worked out well, even though I felt guilty about it. Um, mm. Tier lists, Wouter. Uh, Congo, where do you put them? Uh, both in terms of like an overall tier as well as maybe in a culture victory specific tier.
1: Well, um, I first want to talk about one other ability of Congo. Oh. And I'm really curious <laughs> about what your experience with it is. Because the Congo can't have any holy sites. Or found a religion or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. you do spawn an apostle uh, every time you build, I believe, a theater district or something like that. Mm -hmm. And my personal opinion of that is it can be useful if you have a good religion that is spread towards you. But you also Mm -hmm. need to be really careful with it that you don't help somebody with it to win a religious game. And especially since you have no defense at all against uh, a religion coming towards you, you can't uh, train inquisitors or anything like that. Your only option that you have is literally declaring war on that person and killing their apostles and missionaries by your military force, which is a really big drawback. And yeah. uh, it had me on edge in the beginning because Poland was going to play like a religious game. I knew that because it's Poland. It always does. I, in the end, conquered Poland and used that power of, like, her religion that she already had founded. Unfortunately, didn't evangelize. But I used all those apostles to spread, like, uh, Catholicism throughout my empire to make sure that no other empire would convert me and win the game that way. Had I not conquered Poland, then it could be a significant problem that Poland would Convert me as they all want to do, and then start yeah. converting the rest of the world. Which I had very little like power to stop her, unless I wanted to go and conquer her at that point. Uh, what is your experience with this part of the ability?
0: So it's an interesting mechanic. It's a unique mechanic, and it, you're right. You know, in the sense that when I think about it, I was doing a lot of the legwork for uh, the Netherlands and their spread of Protestantism. Um, the founder belief. You get the founder belief. I'm curious what, if I answer your question, because the founder belief from the netherlands i didn't actually check um which is kind of a mistake because i think it could be beneficial to you if they had certain founder beliefs um do you remember what founder belief poland had that she passed on to you
1: yeah it was uh plus four uh fate for uh world wonders
0: okay so there's probably okay that makes sense then so that one's not terrible but um i guess you know there's there's probably certain founder beliefs that the AI prioritizes and others that they don't. And if you're going for a culture victory, um, I guess it would make sense not to, because what I did is I didn't engage it a hell of a lot, to be honest with you. Every time I got one of these apostles, I I sent them to my neighbor, my neighbors and I converted because that's just kind of what I felt like I needed to do with apostles. And I guess in hindsight, you know, that that's, that's kind of foolish um but i don't know it, d- it didn't really affect the play in the game for me because the netherlands wasn't a huge factor um sorry but um <laughs> i guess it, it yeah i don't know you know because you were I, saying I, I,
1: before I, that
0: well, um, i would have had to check the know. founder belief if the founder belief is beneficial to me like say i look at something like um you know plus 2 gold for each city following this religion church property okay well if they had that as their founder belief well hell yeah i'm going to i'm going to spread that i'm okay with that that gets me gold as well but like if it's if it's one of these other ones like lay ministry or something like that i don't see it as being necessarily beneficial to me
1: yeah like you said before like you don't want to trade away um your great works because you might help somebody else achieving victory or something like that as well yeah and literally what you're doing by spreading your religion is helping another civilization attaining <laughs> like victory without necessarily giving you something in return and uh, wow. that, yeah that, that's really like it's so inti- uh, like intuitive to go take your apostle and spread it to other civilizations because that's what you do with when, when you have an apostle. But I found myself in other games as I played as the Congo that I literally, when I got the Apostle, I just deleted it because it is from a religion that I, first of all, didn't want my own civilization to spread. And second of all, I definitely didn't want to spread it to other civilizations. So it it was really like, I'm really conflicted about this ability because it can be super useful, but it is such a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah
0: absolutely like and that's such a unique mechanic to interact with there's no other civ that i don't think it has anything that resembles that in the sense that the ability itself i think is actually on the whole not beneficial to you and to an extent it is like if you get a founder belief that gets you like the gold ones i think it'll probably be the most helpful um maybe the i don't know maybe the science ones but um it's yeah it's inherently not helpful it's inherently helpful to another civilization so that tells me then I'm playing a religious game and Congo's in it, well shoot, I should go spread. I know his leader agenda, I think, is that he, he dislikes you if you don't spread your religion to him, right? Yeah. Yeah, so so spread your religion to him quickly. Let him do the legwork. Let him be let him be your cryptocurrency mining bot <laughs> crawling the uh, crawling the other civilizations for their religion.
1: I mean, this is literally what I do. When I see that Congo is in the game, normally I wait until I have apostles to spread my religion. But if I see Congo's in the game and he's like even if he's far away, I build a missionary and send him to him as quickly as possible just to make sure that he will follow my religion because I know the AI Congo will help me promote my religion to other civilizations. And yeah. that's awesome.
0: Now he doesn't think about the complexity behind enabling your victory necessarily like a human player would.
1: Oh, not even least. I mean... I think a lot of human players uh, have the same feeling as you do. Like I have an apostle. I need to spread it to other like civilizations. That's what you do. So even mm-hmm. I think a lot of human players are, are not aware of exactly what they're doing because it's so ingrained with them playing the game. You play a religious victory or even if you're not playing religious victory, it's usually beneficial to have others yep. convert to your religion. It's so ingrained yep. to their kind of system that when you're playing in Congo, you don't realize exactly what you're doing. True.
0: No, that's that's fair. Like, if you look at it that way, like it's it, it is it's a unique mechanic, and you're also enabling someone else's victory. So, I am definitely going to be rethinking that and interacting with that in a much more serious way. If and when I play another Congo game, um, we are running long on time with this Congo discussion. So, really quick, tier wise, where would you put them?
1: I would say Congo is definitely S tier for a cultural victory. Overall, they probably go to well. I want to say a tier but i think it's more of a b tier because they're not even their unique unit is not that amazing it has less strength than a swordsman uh, this game True. was useful for me because i didn't have iron but most games that's not really that big of an obstacle to overcome uh, their unique district isn't that amazing either especially since uh, with the magnus being in place chopping is awesome um mm-hmm. And um, then you have their uh, problems with the religion stuff that we just talked about, which is, I mean, it's not so much a problem and you can have a benefit from it, but it is also always a liability, no matter what kind of game you play, no matter how much attention you pay. So with all those like things that aren't that great and potentially negative overall they go to b tier but for cultural yeah. victory they are amazing they're plus 50 percent for all the three that gives you tourism uh great persons that is just too good to pass up and especially yeah. with the fact combined that they get awesome bonuses from um uh artifacts and stuff like that um that's too good to pass up so that has to be S tier in my opinion what do you think yeah
0: well i i would probably agree in the sense that their ability kind of makes up for the the middling tier for i liked my interactions with the gal babe of this game I, I thought they were strong but when you give me the the base stats on it that it's weaker than a swordsman okay i can understand why it wouldn't be that great i wasn't huge in the Mabanza either um and the religion thing is it's just a really unique mechanic so it's it's kind of neat and it's kind of fun and it's well thought out and everything like that but in the end it's not really all that helpful to you so yeah yeah, i mean the the civ ability puts it at least b tier it's it's an outstanding civ ability but um the fact that you know the fact that both of its unique items are middling and its leader ability is meh or confusing or bad or the worst of times probably does keep it from being a or s for me so decidedly in the middle
1: yeah, but if you go culture, they 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 are definitely up there. And, and whenever you go for culture with another civilization, Congo is there. I always make it a point to take him out. Like yeah, they are one of the enough. civilizations that, if I see them in the game, then um, I will go aggressive towards them because I know they will be a problem. Not only because they produce a lot of culture, but we will be competing about the same great people, and they just have a leg up on me.
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to share really quick the report back from our, uh, our good buddy Vector Cat, who shared um, their game with Congo and uh, basically kind of echoed what we're saying here. So, read the part at the end here specifically. Vector Cat says, Quote, uh, really interesting to play, versatile to a point, but they're a bit weak. Their unique unit is weaker than others. And a neighborhood replacement unique district is inherently weak, in my opinion, because neighborhoods themselves are less valuable than other districts. Would you agree with that? Like kind of add on he has that at the end there, that neighborhoods are less valuable than other districts.
1: Yeah, but they compensated yeah. with the fact that, um, the neighborhood is available late in the game. while well, this is actually quite a lot earlier. So that, True. that is neighborhood are less valuable, um, because you could do it with farms, uh, or stuff like that to get the, the, the housing under control. Um, but it, it is useful. It's, it's not bad the thing that makes it bad itself more in my opinion would be that you have to place them on forest or jungle, um, restrictions on where you can place it that weren't there before are, are limiting more, I think, than, uh, the fact that it's just a neighborhood that has been replaced.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So that, that sounds good to me for the report back folks. I think that Overall, we endorse Congo to an extent. Um, we don't endorse them for really, I think, a game where you're going beyond culture. I can't really advocate for them as a inherently being strong in science or domination, um, but they're a fun sieve to play. I had a fun game, maybe not as much fun as I did with Nubia or Georgia, um, but it was it was still enjoyable. Um, for this week, for Report Back, we wanted to go towards domination. So for the next two or three weeks, we're gonna be doing domination-focused sieves and we're gonna be looking at different ways To win a domination game, whether that means different units, whether that means early game versus late game domination, whatever methodology you want to approach for domination, we are going to look at three different sieves that approach that victory style as kind of being their inherent synergy. And so for this week, we're going to go to a DLC sieve, not a Rise and Fall sieve, another DLC sieve here. And we're going to go to everybody's favorite Macedonian, Alexander the Great and Macedon, which is a sieve that I played. A really good game with right after they came out but haven't really touched since um, and I'm really excited for this one actually he's a pretty all encompassing um, comprehensive Civ that has different strengths um, and it's been a while since I played him so I think this will be really fun to go for an early game domination play voucher what are your thoughts
1: I think so as well uh, I really like uh, the early domination you can do with them they're really powerful and I love it when you just heal all your units when you conquer a Yeah,
0: no, that's fantastic. Um, So we will do that, guys. We will be posting that on the subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash CivCast. And as usual, we encourage you guys to give your feedback on that, um, interact with one another. Uh, The subreddit actually gets a lot of posts pertaining to things that aren't either the CivCast challenge that VectorCat is running or the report back. And we love that. We love that you guys are creating a community on there, holding discussions The report back is a great place to just have like a weekly discussion on one specific thing. But if you want to branch out from there, we encourage you to do that. Um, And also, if you're not comfortable using Reddit to share your feedback, please send us an email to civcastpodcast at gmail.com. Voucher shared an email that we got last week, and we will do so if we receive more into the inbox. Um, because yeah we love getting you guys feedback like we we want to point this show in a direction that interests you and that is engaging the the, the elements of said that you want to hear about the most so we hope this segment's doing that and we hope that all of our segments do that and speaking of segments voucher uh, i think we're into strategy slash historical moment time So, uh, would you like to share your strategy tip of the week with the good folks out there?
1: Yes. Today's strategy tip is about trade routes. As you guys know by now, I love my trade routes to death. But Rise and Fall kind of did a thing that I wasn't really sure how to handle with. First of all, you now have to build either the market or the lighthouse itself to gain the extra trade route slot out of it, which is a little bit of a hamper but still always worth it and I want to have at least one trade route being generated by every city. But another thing that I totally didn't see coming is that it actually made me look differently in how I perceived international versus domestic trade routes. Um, and the Magnus has a pretty good ability for uh, your city, which is the surplus lo- logistics, and what it does, it gives plus 20% food growth in the city that he's established in, and your trade routes ending here provide provide two food for their starting city, which in the beginning of the game can make really good internal trade routes. But the thing with the alliance system is, is that by the time you unlock alliances, usually this is actually not my go-to anymore. I go for international trade routes. Um, with the civic of diplomatic service, you unlock alliances. And... Um, you also unlock the policy to go for uh, the Wisselbanken, which uh, gives trade-right swords and ally produce plus two food and plus two production for both cities. And alliance points with each ally grow 25% or faster. Well, the, uh, the alliance itself can give you a nice profit in either science, culture, gold, or... Um, faith depending on what type of alliance you have with that person. The fact that it grows faster makes that alliance go better and give you more yields as well. And together with the whistlebank policy, it actually provides really good international trade routes, which has a lot of added benefits. So I actually start switching away from domestic trade routes unless I have uh the dark age policy that makes your internal trade out's really awesome but uh, by the time that I get towards whistlebank I go for the uh, international a trade routes above domestics and it only gets better with arsenal of democracy which ups both the food and production by plus two and if you get really late into the game then you always have of course the globalization e-commerce uh, for, for plus five production and plus 10 gold from international trade routes um, there are a couple of other policies that also give you some culture and some science which is always nice to add onto it as well so in general I think that I've switched towards team international trade routes from a certain point in the game where you can have alliances. Oh, my
0: God. That's a huge change
1: for you, man. Yeah, it really is. And uh, this game actually showed me that even more. So that's my strategy tip for today. I had a huge change of mind with this new system, and I was leaning towards it for a longer period of time already. But I think I, I, I finally made the switch this week.
0: Beautiful, love it. This week, this was the week the Earth shook the civ, the civ Earth, at least, folks. valkyrie has been expounding the glory of domestic trade route since I've known him. So this change, since I was watching you do your deity Twitch streams back in the day, so this is this is a big change. I've kind of always been an international trade route guy. I guess the cookies of the added science and faith and culture and everything always kind of drew me. But it's good to know that it's got your sponsorship now.
1: Rise and fall it's made the change, right? man. It, it, they yeah, man. really changed it up.
0: Makes sense. All right. My historical moment, it's going to pertain to uh, Congo and specifically to their leader, whose name in the game is Mvemba Azinga. That's his name in real life. Um, But those of you who know, you know, your African history, and Congo was a significant empire, might know him a little better as Afonso I. Uh, The Congolese adopted uh, a lot of Portuguese culture. Portugal was their um, European colonizer. And so, interactions between the Portuguese and the Congolese were pretty extensive. And during the time period of um, Afonso I, um, Azinga's rule and Azinga's rule, um, is when you kind of saw the zenith of this. So, on one hand, Afonso was—it's um, it, funny because the game says that you know they don't have a religion and they welcome your religions and whatever religion it is, they'll spread. Afonso was a devout uh, Roman Catholic. Actually, he himself worked tirelessly to convert Congo. Um, and established the Roman Catholic Church in Congo. I mean, he provided uh, financing for it from tax revenues. He created seminary schools in the country. He had royal seminary schools. Um, And he worked really hard to convert the Congo into this Portuguese style of Catholicism. Now, historians argue and debate whether this was out of expediency, whether the Portuguese kind of were leaning on him to do so, or whether they were paying him to do so, or whatever. There's all sorts of different... Um, incentives for that, or whether he was, you know, spiritually, genuinely bought into this. Um, And I have a quote for you here. Um, It's a quote that I found online uh, that pertains to this, and I'll read it for you. Quote, a final piece of incidental information concerns the presence of Christianity. Although it is sometimes believed that Christianity did not survive through the reign of Afonso, an impression created in part by the slanderous correspondence of Jesuit missionaries and Sao Tome officials written against Diogo, who was Subsequent brother. In fact, all the actors appeared as fairly solid Christians. For example, when he first broke the plan to Afonso, Dom Pedro asked him first to swear on a holy Bible to keep the plan a secret. And this plan was for, basically this plan was for the Portuguese to help um, Afonso to ascend to the throne after the death of Joao I, who was his predecessor. Congo was an elective rather than hereditary monarchy. Anyway, um, furthermore, Diogo apparently observed the right of Christian asylum in a church, enough to allow Pedro to operate from a church for years in his deposition, even though officials from that same church were important witnesses in the trial and obviously played a significant part in revealing the plot. Both Pedro and Diogo, who are significant Christian uh, missionaries, Catholic missionaries from Portugal and the country, respected the decisions of the Pope in the question of succession of the Congo and both thought to obtain the requisite bulls, Recognizing them as rulers of the Congo, concurrently. So it's really interesting. You know, the Portuguese had a really like a really tight presence in the country. But when you read about Afonso himself, when you hear that, it sounds like the Portuguese are ruling this like a scramble for Africa type colonial overlords. But Afonso rejected much of the Portuguese contribution to his society. There's a really funny quote that um, the great historian Adam Hochschild quotes in his fantastic. But haunting book King Leopold's ghost, where he talks about how Afonso adopted certain elements of Portuguese um, code and law and so forth, but then he also openly ridiculed certain um, aspects of it to Portuguese officials. Going so far as when he was presented with the Portuguese law code in like written form and it was explained to him, um, he turned to Castro, folks we were talking about before, one of these main missionaries, and said to him, "What is the punishment, Castro, for putting one's feet on the ground?" In other words, implying that, you know, the the Portuguese system was all about punishment for the most mundane and basic things. Um, So he was he was a modernizer and he was a converter. And he, you know, like I said, you can debate how um, religious he actually was personally or whether this was forced on him or out of, you know, uh, pragmatism or expediency or whatever. But what you can't doubt is that, you know, he was, um, you know, a really strong centralizing force for an empire that at its zenith was actually quite strong, even during Portuguese occupation, maybe even especially during Portuguese occupation, because they facilitated um, some trade through the country. Congo as an empire was large, sprawling, it was strong and healthy. And Afonso was looked back on um, as one of the figures who uh, really helped solidify this empire as one that is probably not just in the 16th century, but in you know between the 14th, basically post-Renaissance era and post-colonial era, um, African empires one of the strongest and one of the best known. Um, and probably the most important thing to remember, Afonso, too, is some of these um, African empires at the time they worked together with the European nations um, to facilitate the transatlantic slave trade. Um, they did so, you know, for. for probably first and foremost for the safety of their people and the safety of their families and villages and cities and stuff, because the Europeans would oftentimes threaten them with destruction and devastation if they didn't facilitate this. But Afonso was always against it. He wrote a series of letters to the Portuguese, to the king in Portugal and to the emissaries condemning this going so far as to learn enough Portuguese to write one letter in Portuguese. Um, And one of the letters, I'm going to read a quotation from you or for you, um, that really kind of struck home when i was reading it quote each day the traders are kidnapping our people children of this country's sons of our nobles and vassals even people of our own family this corruption and depravity are so widespread that our land is entirely depopulated we need in this kingdom only priests and school teachers and no merchandise unless it's wine and flour for mass it is our wish that this kingdom not be a place for the trade or transport of slaves many of our subjects eagerly lust after portuguese merchandise that your subjects have brought into our domains to satisfy this inordinate appetite, they seize many of our Black free subjects. They sell them. After having taken these prisoners to the coast secretly or at night, as soon as the captives are in the hands of white men, they are branded, branded with a red-hot iron and never seen again. So, Afonso Al- was not about the slave trade. He was he was one of the f- first and most vocal um, you know, detractors of it and going so far as to try and prevent it through diplomatic means and through the close relations he had with um, the Portuguese. Unfortunately, for the most part, he wasn't able to. We know how history plays out with that. But, you know, he was concerned about his people. He was a modernizer and he was, uh, for all intents and purposes of what I read, a really fantastic leader for the Congolese people. So, yeah, that's him.
1: Yeah, it's always interesting. Yeah, it's always interesting that like people like that already spoke out uh, even back in the day uh, it, because he was literally like his subjects were suffering, and uh, it's mm-hmm. interesting uh, now in history we know how it all turned out. But uh, it makes you just wish that that they had a little bit more influence in the end.
0: That they listened. Yeah, that the the Europeans had listened to these voices. I mean, he wrote these letters in 1526. That's the start of the transatlantic slave trade, and you think about the 300. Or so years of suffering that followed that. But yeah. if they had have just listened to enlightened, wise voices like Afonso, they could have prevented. But I mean, hindsight's 2020 in history and it's it is what it is. But it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, any other thoughts or additions here, buddy? I think that we're we're running right up against the ceiling of time here.
1: Yeah. Uh, nothing more for today. Looking forward to play some uh, Alexander to see if I can conquer the known world
0: exactly yeah and when there were no worlds left to conquer he wept yeah so there's there's at least one uh, i think there's one yeah there is a really really cool and really difficult to get um because it's extremely situational achievement for macedon um do you want me to share it now or do you want me to kind of save it
1: um go ahead and share it now then people know what they can go for
0: so it's called greatest is as greatest does Playing as Macedon conquer a city containing both the great library and great lighthouse wonders oh yeah so that I feel like that is gonna be I don't know not impossible but obviously you're gonna need if you okay if you see the great library and great lighthouse are built by one specific sieve in your game that's your chance folks go for it <laughs> take the opportunity because I I don't pay enough attention to who's building what, but I can't imagine that happens very often.
1: I can't imagine either. That that is really specific. Maybe you need to play on like an uh, island plate or something like that to make the odds a little bit higher.
0: Maybe I don't know, but I mean that's going to be that one only has zero point one percent. It's one of the lowest achieved in the entire game, and you can understand why. But hey, if you achieve that, folks, share with us because that's that sounds even a, even yeah. more difficult than the thirty pop city for Congo.
1: So, oh, definitely.
0: Yeah. All right, uh, that's going to do it from us for today. Thank you again for your downloads, folks. Uh, Reddit.com slash r slash Civcast is where you'll find us most of the time. Sivcastpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe, share a comment about the podcast if you like, and whatever your podcast subscription app is. We'd love to hear some comments from you guys in that, and that's a great way to get the word out to positive advertisement is its own reward, but also people will, uh, will hear it. Hopefully, we'll get a few more ears listening to it um report back to us on the reddit enjoy the civcast challenge which is in the reddit as well and which we'll be talking about over the next couple weeks and remember i find the great thing in this world is not so much where we stand as in what direction we are moving